In today's episode, we explore Paul's theology of Israel. More specifically, we take a look at one of the most neglected chapters in all the New Testament. That's Romans chapter 11, a passage that is not friendly to those who believe that the church has replaced Israel. That's on today's Tove Podcast. You are listening to the Tove Podcast. Well, to begin with, I'd like to start with a quote from Dr. Tim Sigler, who serves as the provost at Shepherd's Theological Seminary. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because we've had Dr. Sigler as a guest before here on the Tove Podcast. If you'd like to hear him teach a theology of Jerusalem, you can listen to Season 3, Episode 16. This quote from Dr. Sigler comes from the introduction of a book that has just been released in the last couple months. It's called Forsaking Israel how it happened, and why it matters. And Dr. Sigler says the following, Many believers are unaware or unaffected by the fact that they believe in a Jewish Messiah who came from and is returning to the land and people of Israel. Israel's a nice story that is concluded, they seem to think. They happily read verses like John 1, 11 and 12, as if the final word on the Jewish people is that God used them for his purpose, but is now done with them. Well, not so fast. Upon closer examination of God's redemptive plan, there's not only a past for the people of Israel, but a future as well. Though both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles declare this truth in multiple places, Romans 9-11 through may be the clearest, most intentional, in complete treatment of God's redemptive plan available to us in Scripture. How can Christians miss this fact? How can it be possible for a person to be a Christian for many years and not know anything about Israel, the Jewish people, and God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Could it be that the systems of theology and approaches to Scripture that are being taught in many churches today have found a way to read Israel right out of the Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible is telling the story of God's redemptive plan, a story about how God proposed to bless all the families of the earth through Israel. And that's just the introduction to this important work by the faculty of Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And uh, if you're looking for a great resource on uh, the forsaking of Israel and really how it happened, taking a look at the the history and the ancient thinking of the church fathers with regard to Israel, uh, pick up this book, Forsaking Israel, How It Happened and Why It Matters. Well, without further ado, I'd like to dive in today to Romans chapter 11. As was mentioned in uh, Dr. Sigler's quote there, Romans 9 through 11 really is the clearest teaching we have on God's present and future plan for the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 11 is simply not friendly to those who come at the text with a presupposition. And that presupposition is that in some way, shape, or form, God is done with Israel and the Jewish people, that Israel has served her purpose. This thinking takes on the form of what we've referred to here on the Tove podcast many times before as replacement theology, uh, also called supersessionism. This is the belief 
that the church has replaced Israel in the program of God. And as we've said here on the Tove podcast, and as uh, I've had guests come on the podcast and uh, been able to explain even better than I, is that that is simply not taught in the scriptures. That a presupposition is needed in order to come to that kind of an inclusion. A system of theology that the Bible does not teach is needed to come to that conclusion that God has done with Israel. The reason for God's faithfulness to Israel doesn't have anything to do with Israel's behavior, just as God's faithfulness to you has nothing to do with your behavior. Scriptures tell us that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. The main reason for God's enduring faithfulness to Israel is because of his name. It's because of his character. It has everything to do with God and not much to do with Israel at all. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not driving down the road, I'd like to encourage you to pull out your scriptures and walk through Romans chapter 11 with me. I think you'll benefit greatly from having the text right before you, whether it's on your phone or whether it's in your Bible where you can write in the margins. I'd invite you to open up your Bible as we walk through this together today. Right, so right away, Paul wants to address an issue. He's writing here to the church at Rome, which is composed of both Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers. And Paul is asking the question right up front, has God rejected Israel? Now, why might people think that God has rejected Israel during this time? Well, it's almost as if Paul seeks to answer what some commentators have labeled as an unseen objector. And after the wonderful writing of Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor principalities here or there, all kinds of different things he mentions, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that is a wonderful truth. And then all of a sudden, Paul launches into a theology of Israel. And it's like he's, he's answering this question, okay, Paul, you say nothing separates someone from the love of God, but what about Israel? Haven't they been separated from the love of God since now there's this new entity that's just been created called the church? Doesn't the church replace Israel? And so Paul is addressing the unseen objector here. And indeed, many people still have this question today. And so I'm happy to deliver Romans chapter 11, where Paul clearly answers the question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, Paul says. So when it comes to supersessionism, when it comes to replacement theology, when it comes to this weird belief that God would, for some reason or the other, forsake a nation that he has made promises to that have yet to be fulfilled— this single verse should be enough to say, okay, I guess that whole system of theology is incorrect because clearly Paul is teaching that God has not abandoned the Jewish people. Yet somehow replacement theology continues like a locomotive freight train. We'll talk about some reasons why that's the case as we go through the chapter here. But already we've learned God has not forsaken Israel and that should bring us encouragement. That should bring us confidence in God's utter faithfulness to his promises. Because if God has forsaken Israel, with whom he made a blood covenant, back in Genesis chapter 15, and with whom he made certain promises about their future, both on a physical level and a spiritual level, 
a political level, if God has forsaken those promises, what hope do you and I have? Because if you're like me, you've not been utterly faithful to God, so how much faithlessness does it take for God to break his promises to you? How many times does the church have to be faithless in order for God to break his promises to the church? Well, again, thankfully, it doesn't depend on us. God is faithful to his promises regardless of our behavior. That is a crucial point. So, Paul says no in verse 1. God has not rejected his people. And then he gives himself as an example. He says, For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, Look at me. I am living proof that God has not rejected his people. Of course, we could also look at the disciples, the apostles, and the majority of the early church was Jewish, just as a small segment of the church today is Jewish, a very important segment. That brings us to verse 2. Paul's going to state the same truth, except this time not in question form. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, what does this mean? The, the plain meaning of the text is that God has not rejected his people. How else can it be said where it is clear? Ultimately, these two verses completely erode the main premise of supersessionism, the main premise that God has left Israel and moved on to the church, that the church has replaced Israel. It's simply not taught in the Bible. Paul says, or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? how he pleads with God against Israel. Right? We all remember this instance when Elijah became very discouraged. He ran away from the wicked Jezebel because uh, she sought his life. And he gets discouraged and he goes all the way down to Mount Sinai. And he's there and the Lord comes to him in a gentle whisper. And he thinks that he is the only faithful Israelite that's left. Verse 3, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I'm the only one left and they are trying to take my life. Verse 4, what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed the knee to Baal, or Baal. You see, even at that time, even back in Elijah's time, there was this concept of a remnant, a faithful group of Israelites, and Elijah was simply unaware of this faithful group, but they existed. And that's what Paul shares with us in verse 5. He says, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Right, I've mentioned here on the Tove podcast before that there are many Jewish believers spread out across the world today, thousands upon thousands. Do they make up the majority of the church? No. Do they make up even half the church? No. A quarter of the church? No. But they are a vital part of the church. They're a necessary part of the church. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul is laying out God's design for the church, it is that Jew and Gentile be made one in Messiah. And we need Jewish believers for that to happen. Paul continues in verse 6, Now if it's by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. All right, this is a point that if you're a believer listening today, you can relate to as well. It wasn't because of your works that you've been saved. It wasn't because you got your act clean that you're now saved. It's because of God's grace in your life. By his spirit, by his love, he saved you. And Paul says the same is true 
here with the remnant, the Jewish believers that exist. That brings us to verse 7. Now, Paul's about to explain to us here an interesting concept. He says, Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this very day. Paul quoting there from a couple different passages. Verse 9, And David says, Let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. Now, what we have here is a concept of a spiritual hardening of part of Israel. And the question is, what do you do with this partial spiritual hardening of Israel? Well, there are some who simply say, like someone did on Facebook this last week, the Jews had their chance, let's move on to the Gentiles. So you could take a hostile position. But is that a biblical position? We're about to see here in just a little bit that it's not a biblical position. But the reality is, is that we have a sad situation here. That for the time being, and we'll see why it's only temporary in just a second, for the time being, there is a partial hardening on Israel. Again, the question is, what do you do with that? Do you then just throw your hands up in the air and say, well, there's a partial hardening on Israel, so what can we do with them? Again, I don't think so. We could take that attitude about any group of people. You show me any group of people where the majority are believers. You show me any group of people that are just welcoming the gospel day in and day out. Not happening. Someone uh, recently uh, intimated to me that Gentiles were not arrogant and stubborn. Gentiles were the ones who were receiving of the Messiah. Really? Are even half of Gentiles in the world today believers? No. Are, are even a quarter of the Gentiles in the world today believers? No. So, why would we think that Gentiles are somehow welcoming of the Messiah, and yet Jewish people are not? Seems to me that there is a veil over everybody. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that's the case, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, whether Jew or Gentile, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Right? It doesn't matter who you are, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. You're, nobody, no nation, no people group, no ethnicity has a flesh that just causes them to rise up and run to the Messiah. Paul says no one seeks God. But we have here from Paul an issue a very interesting concept of a partial hardening of Israel, and that's real. But that's not the final word, for Paul continues in verse 11. I ask then, have they, now who's the they? It's Israel. Have they stumbled in order to fall? Now, what's Paul referring to here? The stumbling, I believe Paul is talking about, is that initial rejection of Israel's leadership of the Messiah. And Paul is essentially asking, are they down for the count? Or, did they stumble for no reason? His answer is absolutely not. And then he's going to give us one of the reasons why they stumbled. One of the reasons why the majority of Israel rejected Jesus when he came the first time. He says, on the contrary, by their stumbling, a.k.a. by their rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Wow. So Paul tells us here that one of the reasons the gospel went to all nations was because Israel rejected it. 
by and large. Now, it seems to me that as a Gentile, you'd be grateful for that and not form hostility toward Israel and the Jewish people. But as I continue to interact with people, whether it's in the digital arena or whether it's in person, I see a lot of hostility from Gentiles against our Jewish friends. And I think that's sad. And I don't think that you find that kind of attitude in the New Testament or anywhere in Scripture. And Paul addresses that attitude, and we're going to do that in just a second. But he says, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? Well, first of all, we know from John 3.16, one of the reasons is because God loves the whole world. He's not desiring that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. Amen. But it seems to me Paul gives another reason here, which we've talked about on a previous Tove podcast called Six Forgotten Passages, Season 3, Episode 14. He says, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Wow. In other words, we are to be living in such a way that Jewish people see believers, they see Gentile believers, and they want what we have. Far too long, believers have been living the opposite way. You can read books like Our Hands Are Stained With Blood by Dr. Michael Brown. You could read The Anguish of the Jews by Father Edward Flannery. You could read Future Israel by Dr. Barry Horner. And there's plenty of other books out there that discuss the church's horrible relationship throughout the years with our Jewish friends. I'm not going to go into all that now. That's not our purpose now. It's important to understand that. But just know that the church, by and large, has not loved the Jewish people like the scriptures encourage us to do. And our Jewish friends are quite aware of that. When I meet Christians, they don't want to talk about that very much. But I think we need to talk about it if we're ever going to repair the divide between the Christian and Jewish communities. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if their stumbling, if their initial rejection of the Messiah brings riches for the world, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? In other words, Paul is saying here, if the world gained so much through their rejection, can you just think of what the world's going to gain by their acceptance of the Messiah? The Moody Bible Commentary here says that Paul was intensely burdened that the Jewish people come to the Lord. For when they do, the world will erupt in spiritual vitality and life. End quote. Amen. Absolutely. And that's the picture that we have painted for us of the end. Now, verse 13, Paul calls some folks out. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, right? We know this. Paul called himself an apostle to the Gentiles. He was called by God to primarily reach the Gentiles. Yet we find it fascinating that every place Paul went to, he went to the Jew first. A discussion for another time. He says, I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. You see, even though Paul was called as an apostle to the Gentiles, his great burden was still for the Jewish people. And indeed, in his praxis, he went to the Jewish people. He never stopped going to them, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles. Why? Well, because Paul had a biblical theology. And he states it in Romans 1.16. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation unto everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In Romans 1.16, that's in the present tense. The gospel is still to the Jew first. It is of priority. It is of special importance for the Jewish people. 
Paul says, I wish I could save some of them. Verse 15, For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Again, the same principle is found in verse 12. Verse 16, Now if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now Paul is going to move to the ever-popular olive tree illustration, which is a often misunderstood illustration. And so before we dive into the olive tree, we're going to take a quick break on the Tove Podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, welcome back to the Toe Podcast. We are diving deep into Romans chapter 11 today, rooting out any kind of bad theology that's out there surrounding the Jewish people and Israel. We are ready for verse 17, which uh, begins the description of the olive tree, a very important illustration, but an often misunderstood one at that. Paul says, now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, now, let's just stop right there a second. Who's the you in this passage? Well, again, Paul just said, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's still addressing Gentiles here. And the branches, as we're going to see in a second, are unbelieving Jewish people. He says, if some of these branches were broken off and you Gentiles, though you're a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Now, let's stop again. What we have here is a picture of an olive tree, and there are branches that apparently have been cut off, and then there are what Paul calls wild olive branches. Now, he's referring to Gentile believers as wild olive branches. Why are we called wild? Because we're not part of the natural olive tree. We're not part of Israel. And that's okay. That's a great thing. We're not part of Israel, though. It's important to understand. Gentiles are not part of Israel. Now, we're called wild olive branches, and we've been grafted in. And this is where a lot of misunderstanding comes in. Believers oftentimes say we've been grafted into Israel. Well, as we'll see from a close reading of the text, that simply can't be. We are not grafted into Israel. He says, Some of the branches were broken off, and you Gentiles, though you're a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them. And we've come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, right? Because Gentile believers believe in the God of Israel, believe in the Messiah of Israel, the scriptures of the Jewish people, we are sharing in the rich root of this olive tree. That brings us to verse 18. Paul says, because of that, here's the lesson. Do not brag that you are better than those branches. And there's two problems that Paul's going to lay out here. And I see these problems are rampant, especially in the Western church today. The problem of arrogance, of Gentile believers thinking that they are better than the Jewish people. And ignorance. Gentile believers simply being unaware 
of God's program for Israel and the Jewish people, despite the clear teachings of Scripture on it. Ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance and arrogance are the fuel of replacement theology. Ignorance and arrogance keep replacement theology running like a locomotive throughout history. Paul continues, If you do brag, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Verse 19, Then you'll say, Well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, True enough, they, Jewish unbelievers, were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. Right Again, Paul's saying, Listen, you're in this position of being connected to this olive tree because of faith, not because of your works, not because of your inerrant worth, not because you're better than anybody else. And then he continues, Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. In case we didn't pick it up the first time, Paul says specifically, Do not be arrogant. Do not think that you, Gentile believer, are better than these Jewish people. Again, The majority of history between the Christian and Jewish community is one of arrogance and ignorance that results in violence. Pastor Barry Horner in his book Future Israel says the following, quote, Good doctrine produces good fruit, not bad fruit, and bad doctrine produces bad fruit. See Matthew chapter 7. Consequently, the historic outworking of supersessionism, a.k.a. replacement theology, cannot be neglected. The overwhelming testimony which follows will inevitably lead to questioning of the viability of the underlying eschatology. In a real sense, history is the proving ground of revealed truth. Those who neglect this relationship between doctrinal truth and ethics end up conferring on mankind error and its unethical consequences. And then Pastor Horner goes on to lay out the dark history of how the church has treated the Jewish people over the last 2,000 years. And his point is that, listen, if supersessionism is a biblical theology, then it'll produce good fruit by those who hold to it. But what has been the cause of the violence against the Jewish people, of the animosity against the Jewish people down through the ages? It has been a belief that God has neglected them, that God has forsaken them, and that he's replaced them with, oh, I guess me. How convenient is that? Of course, as you can imagine, this kind of theology thrives in self-centered places like the Western world. It absolutely thrives. Who doesn't want to be told that you are the center of God's plan and universe? Who doesn't want to be told that Israel had their chance and now he's moved on to you? Feels good to be told that. Feels good to take the place of someone else. But it's not biblical. It's not true. And the resulting fruit of that doctrine has led to error, and it's led to disgrace, and it's led to a bad witness for believers. And it needs to be thrown off, repented of, neglected, and changed. And it's not just violence that this particular theological position has produced. Indeed, if it was just violent all the time, it probably would have been thrown off a long time ago. But I would say that a very dangerous position that this theological stance leads one into is a position of apathy. 
a position of apathy whereby people just don't care and they don't know about God's heart for his people and they don't see what's coming for Israel and the Jewish people. It's, it's a stance of apathy. So if someone is not vehemently opposed to the Jewish people, if they're not theologically anti-Semitic, it doesn't mean that they're not holding to replacement theology. There are a lot of folks out there who just don't care. And that has caused much harm throughout the centuries. Charles Spurgeon in 1887, preaching, says that Jewish ministry is one of the most barren of all ministry fields. So even, you know, 130 years ago, 1887 was the year Life and Messiah was founded. Spurgeon goes on, he says, not only is it one of the most barren of all ministry fields, but it's one of the most ridiculed of the ministry fields. In other words, those believers, those few believers that are going to the Jewish people, whom the gospel is to the Jew first, are being ridiculed as they go. Why is that the case? Well, it's because of Gentile arrogance and ignorance. Verse 21, Paul says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jewish people, he's not going to spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Gentiles aren't any better than Jewish people, and so if they don't have belief, they're going to be cut off too. He continues. Verse 23, Even if they, Israel, if they do not remain in unbelief, they'll be grafted in again because God has the power to graft them in again. Again, this verse should point to the fact that God has not forsaken the Jewish people. Verse 24, For if you Gentiles were cut off from your native wild olive, and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Right? It makes complete sense for Jewish people to believe in a Jewish Messiah. It doesn't make as much sense for a Gentile to believe in a Jewish Messiah. That's why we're called wild olive branches. Again, it doesn't mean that we're not loved as much. It doesn't mean that we have lesser value. Verse 25, Paul says, so that you will not be conceited, brothers. There it is again, so that you will not be arrogant. And notice he's speaking to believers. So that you will not be arrogant, brothers. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. There it is. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Don't be arrogant. Don't be ignorant. Either of those two things will lead you into doctrinal error concerning Israel and the Jewish people especially. Once you are led into doctrinal error concerning Israel and the Jewish people, the whole Bible becomes confusing. You start reading passages about Israel and seeing yourself. You start reading passages about Israel and seeing the church. You start taking all the blessings that God has offered Israel to yourself. But you just leave the curses to Israel. Why take those? It's not convenient. It doesn't feel good. Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. I don't want you to be ignorant of it, folks. He says, a partial hardening has come on Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. There's that partial hardening again, but I want to point out two things about it. Number one, it's partial. It's not full. Some people think, all Jewish people, they just, all Jewish people reject Jesus. 
No, clearly you haven't met a Jewish believer. Number two, it's temporary. This partial hardening we see that is in God's sovereign spiritual plan, this this partial hardening we see on Israel today is temporary. It's it's not going to last forever. We've talked about the timing of things before on the Tove podcast, that someday when Jesus returns, he'll be welcomed by Israel. There is a partial hardening on Israel until. Until what? Until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Apparently, there is a number in God's program. There is a specific last final Gentile that's got to come in before finally God's final end of days program is enacted and all Israel is saved. We see that coming up here. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. All Israel is going to be saved. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, I don't think it means that all Jewish people who have ever lived over the last two millennia are going to be saved regardless of what they believed about Jesus. That's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is that one day in the future, the whole nation of Israel is going to be saved. And I thought about this one day. Do we have any examples of a whole nation being saved? Well, I think we do. Remember the prophet Jonah? He went to Nineveh, preached a message of repentance, and everybody in Nineveh repented, from the king on down to the guy sweeping the streets. The whole nation repented. That's what's going to happen when all Israel is saved, and it'll surely happen as the rest of the prophecies in Scripture have happened. And as a proof, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, right? Because Paul wasn't the first one to say this. If we just read our prophets and we believe our prophets, then we know that they taught the same thing. Paul says, As it is written, The liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Wow. What a wonderful picture for Israel and their future. If you are someone who prays for Israel, this should give you great encouragement. Your prayers are, your prayers are going to be used. If you're someone who shares the gospel with the Jewish people, it should give you great encouragement. Those seeds you planted are going to be harvested someday in the future. You know, verse 27 says, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What covenant is Paul referring to here? Well, believe it or not, I think Paul's referring to the new covenant. You know, the new covenant still has aspects of it that have yet to be fulfilled. I know some people think that Jesus started the new covenant and now we're just kind of in the new covenant age and that's pretty much it. But there are aspects of the new covenant, including Israel's restoration, that have yet to take place. And so, if Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, you can guarantee he's going to finish the job. And part of the job that needs finished is the gathering of all Israel and their salvation. And Jesus is going to do it, the Messiah of Israel. If you're interested in a deeper study on the new covenant, you can listen to season two, episode six, where we did a whole episode on what is the new covenant. And we dive down into the specifics of what's promised in the New Covenant. And one other point I'd like to make about verse 26, and this is really an important point. If one day in the future, all Israel is going to be saved, okay, that's what Paul's clear teaching is. I'm not sure how else one could take that. Israel has not 
ever been completely saved in the past, and certainly Israel is not saved now, Paul says one day they will be saved. So we know that. Israel, the Jewish people, in the future, they're going to be saved. Now let me ask you a question. How can the church be Israel if Israel still needs saving? It can't happen. The, the church cannot both be saved, and that is the very definition of the church, those who have been saved, and yet in the future still need saving. Paul's point would be absolutely moot. It would be nonsense. Verse 28, he says, Paul says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Right? Paul says, regarding the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your Gentiles' advantage. Now, notice Paul is not saying that the Jewish people are the enemy of the Gentiles. He's not saying that. They're saying that the majority of Jewish people are enemies of the gospel, not you. He says, but regarding election, regarding their chosenness, right? When God initially chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, when God made that choice, they are loved because of the patriarchs. They are still chosen. The Jewish people are still God's people. Nothing has changed in the program of God related to that. Verse 29 tells us why. Since God's gracious gifts and his calling are irrevocable. Right? These promises that God has made to Israel and promises made to the world are irrevocable, folks. They're irrevocable. That should give us great hope and encouragement. But for some reason, there is a large segment of the church today that believes that God's promises are irrevocable unless they're made to the Jewish people. Well, then those can be revoked because the Jewish people have been bad. Where do you see that in Scripture? How did this system of theology become so entrenched into our thinking? Well, I think Paul answered the question for us already. Ignorance and arrogance. Ignorance and arrogance. Verse 30, Paul says, As you once disobeyed God, Gentiles, but now you've received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also now may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Now, why talk about this subject? Why bring up an issue that seemingly has nothing to do with how we live everyday life? Ultimately, this issue is so important because it is related to God's character. For if supersessionism is right, if the church truly has replaced Israel, then I think we have a problem with the character of God. Because if the words of the text mean anything, then we have to take God at his word that when he promised certain things to Abraham which have yet to be fulfilled, that God will still fulfill those promises. And to try and work around that with some kind of elaborate system of Jesus simply fulfilling everything or Israel disobeying and so now the church has come in and, oh boy, the church has been so righteous. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love the church. I love the church. I'm a part of the church. But come on, have we really been perfectly white as snow? No. It doesn't take a scholar to see that. 
And if God has truly rejected Israel, who's to say that he's not going to reject his promise to send Jesus back because the church has been bad? Right? You see where this theology goes. You just end up questioning everything God has ever promised based on our behavior. That's not how God works, though. That's just not the character of God. And that's why I think this is such an important point. I'll conclude with a quote from the book in which we started today. The book, Forsaking Israel, How It Happened and Why It Matters. At the conclusion of the book, it is written, quote, In summary, Paul has delivered to us in Romans 11 the truth regarding Israel's past, present, and future. First, God has promised Israel a glorious, eternal future. Their disobedience has not annulled God's promise. He has not finally rejected his disobedient people because his promise was made based on his grace, not Israel's faithfulness. God's promise is evidenced by a continuing remnant of believing Jews, including Paul himself. Point two, Israel's failure has had grave consequences for the nation. Their hearts have been hardened, and in God's plan, they have been temporarily hardened. Point three, this hardening of Israel has resulted in the salvation of Gentiles, which has prepared the way for Israel's return to the Lord. And point four, Israel's hardening is only partial and temporary. When Messiah returns at the end of the tribulation period, the nation of Israel as a whole will repent and turn to faith in him and enter his millennial kingdom. What a glorious day that'll be. Well, thank you for joining us for this special episode of an in-depth look at Romans chapter 11. If you'd like to listen to other episodes of the Tove Podcast, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or at tovepodcast.com. If you have any questions, feel free to submit those through our Facebook page or at tovepodcast.com. And if you're a Gentile out there, remember, part of your duties, because you've received so much from the Jewish people, is to live in such a way and talk in such a way that you make them jealous for their Messiah. Shalom.